Hello, hello, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. Of note, this whole time, you folks have been with us and we've been talking about IBS and what to do if you have IBS. We realized very recently that we never did an episode of like, hey, I just got diagnosed with IBS. What do I do now? And that is what we're going to be covering for you today in this episode. So I have proposed to Amy, and you could confirm if you still want to do this. I had suggested the first half of this episode, we're going to talk about, okay, you just got diagnosed with IBS. Here's what to consider next. And then in the second half of the episode, knowing, knowing the stuff that you guys are struggling with and the people who we seem to attract to this podcast, the second half of this episode will be dedicated to you just got diagnosed with SIBO. And what do you do next? with the new SIBO diagnosis. So without further ado, I'm going to put my co-host on the on the spot here and ask her to kind of kick off that first topic with us. So so Amy, pretend if you will, I'm a person you just met on the street. I literally just walked out of the gastroenterology clinic and I tell you, man, I just got diagnosed with IBS. I don't know what to do now. Take it away. <laughs> no Hopefully you don't have a low FODMAP handout in your person that they just said, just jump, jump start there. Well, again, what not to do is potentially just jump right on low FODMAP right out the gate. Um, which I think again is a first, a first knee jerk, like, Oh, you have IBS. Definitely try low FODMAP right out the gate, like an initial strategy, which I don't necessarily think it should be the first go-to strategy mm-hmm. when you get diagnosed with IBS. So that might be one thing to think about. What not to do is maybe jump right on low FODMAP. You could potentially keep it as a tool as need be, but in terms of like diet manipulation in that vein, I probably would try other things first. I think probably the thing that I would do first would be to... <laughs> Maybe get an understanding of like, if I was a provider working with someone, um, but even before that, if you're a person who just got diagnosed with IBS, I'd probably look at your nutrition, your sleep, your stress, your um, movement, your connection, your mental health. I'd probably like go through a couple like just foundational boxes of like, okay, how is my nutrition overall? Like, do I get enough fiber? Do I eat enough protein? Do I have balanced meals that are healthy with vegetables and fruits? Like I would start there dietarily of like, oh, maybe if I just clean up my diet a little bit, not that it has to be perfect, but, you know, try to have consistent, good, hearty, healthy meals would be really a a good place to start. Um, I think again, then it's like, how's my sleep? Am I getting a decent seven to eight hours of sleep each night? Um, if that's kind of been a bit of a struggle for you of putting a little bit of time and energy there, like doesn't have to be perfect every night, but like if you're hitting seven to eight hours, like 90% of the time, I think that that's probably a good goal. I think stress management, like assessing where st- how stress plays into the equation. Um, do you do stress management? Do you have some self-care that kind of helps you manage stress? Like how resilient are you to your stress? Do you need to cut certain things out 
that are unnecessary stress um, that are burdening you. Um, and then, again, I think movement-wise, assessing movement. Like, do you, are you doing too much Do you movement? move? Right. Do you move at all? Like, do you do... Is the intensity and the frequency of your movement appropriate for where you're at? Um, again, like those would be the f- first things that I would try. And I think a lot of times we work with people so down the pipeline that it's almost confusing to to think about what should a, a, be the initial first steps. But like, I think that just assessing your diet and lifestyle and and what needs the most work to start there first um, and start kind of investing some strategies to help your overall diet and lifestyle and then seeing what your then baseline looks like. Because I'd imagine, again, like even for the cases that are super extreme that we work with, still the foundational pieces can oftentimes be what makes or break, makes or breaks those cases. So it's crazy. Again, people that come to us that have been down this road for 10 years, but they've never addressed the stress piece or they've never gotten enough sleep or, or whatever it is, whatever that piece of the puzzle is that they haven't totally been able to wrestle. Um, again, it's still super, super important, even for these really intense cases, like it can be so pivotal. Um, so again, I think the more you can focus on foundations just right out the gate and do that for maybe a solid like two to three months and sort of see where you're at. Um, I think especially maybe at the end of like three-ish months of really putting some time and energy into those areas just to assess where you're at. Maybe if you're doing really well, continue that for another three months. If you feel like you need to like, you're still having some issues and you need to kind of in do some more thorough like microbiome work or add in some digestive support or maybe some adaptogens or like you need to do some of the more fancy things um, or work with a provider that can kind of help guide you with that sort of thing. But I think again, like from my end, doing like a solid three months of diet and lifestyle cleanup is probably a really good first step and seeing just what kind of progress you can make just doing that. Plus, by the time you start working with someone, you're at a much better baseline. Um, Because again, like, if we work with someone that hasn't addressed some of the foundational pieces, it's hard for us to really understand how much that's affecting things. But if you're kind of coming in with a fairly solid foundation, it's a lot easier for us to assess and to strategize with you of what makes sense from this point. But like, again, if you're someone that's been down this road a long period of time, it's much harder if you haven't addressed, like you still have to go backwards to address those foundational pieces. I love this so much. First of all, so thank you for that lead in because, oh my God, it was so juicy and so full of wisdom. But I think the best way to describe what you were hitting on at the end there is eliminating variables. Right. So if you think as an example stress, just as as one to pick one from that bucket, stress and the stress hormones, the stress chemistry, like cortisol, corticotropin releasing hormone, adrenaline, um, stress is going to mess with your sleep, oftentimes. And then good luck getting your gut brain access to work if your brain is fried, because you don't have any sleep. 
it's going to degranulate mast cells and make you more like histaminic and more prone to like allergies and immune activation. It tends to deplete you of certain nutrients and antioxidants like glutathione, um, even like even things that you wouldn't think of, like it constricts blood flow typically to be in a stress response. So like I know for me, when I'm acutely stressed, my hands turn into ice cubes mm. versus when I'm not stressed. So it's constricting blood flow and it's shunting resources away from your gut and towards the big muscles of your body. Because again, to use the overused example, if you're running away from the tiger, you don't need to digest anything. You need all of your blood flow, all of your nutrients, all of your resources going to the muscles in your legs and your arms and your core and your glutes. And you need to get the heck out of there so that you could survive another day. So survival mode and stress chemistry is really profoundly impactful on your body. But then if you think about it, like a person, let's say somebody who is under a lot of stress goes in to see a provider, like a functional medicine provider. Well, they could have cold hands and feet and the person could be told, oh, I bet you have a thyroid problem. They could have gut problems because they don't have blood flow going to their gut and they're told, oh, they have IBS or GERD or whatever it might be. Mm. You, you know, you shut down motility and digestive secretions when you can't get into rest and digest mode. Well, now the person's diagnosed with SIBO. And their sleep sucks. Oh, well, your sleep sucks because like your gut brain axis and like your nervous system is impaired because you're so inflamed and like, Mer. and oh, by the way, you have histamine intolerance. And oh, by the way, you have an autoimmune disease. And it's like, all of that could be downstream from one of these foundations. And I just picked one as right. an example with stress chemistry. But I love that idea of, because honestly, let's, let's talk about what's commonly done. Oftentimes, the first thing is you get sent home with the one page low FODMAP handout. Great, not confusing or overwhelming at all. Uh, oftentimes, people will start doing their own research, which could be a good or a bad thing. And they're going to hit the Facebook groups, the Reddit threads, the Qora forums, the whatever. And they're going to be pouring over their own research because they feel like they have to figure it out themselves. Um, Oftentimes, then the algorithms and Google and Facebook start targeting you and you start getting a lot of ads for gut cleanses and detoxes and probiotics and prebiotics and fiber supplements and cleanses and this and that. And then the person oftentimes will start buying a lot of supplements and it just kind of snowballs until you get to a place where your diet is super restricted. You have a million supplements that you're not really using and you don't know if they're working and mm. And, and then it turns into this frantic scramble. So I like that the stuff that you recommended, A, has the most impact on physiology. And it's going to eliminate the greatest number of variables so that you can really get a clean assessment of what's going on with the gut itself versus what is happening because of some other system going hangwire. Um, it doesn't cost a lot of money. Right. Like yeah. if you want to work on your sleep or your stress and start doing like breath work or guided meditation or yoga, like you could do any of those things for free with YouTube videos and blog articles. And like you could do all of that on your own for free. You could start moving for free. Like you could start going for walks or doing body weight squats or push ups at home. So there's just so much potential to do things for either free or super, super cheap but it's going to have a really great impact. And importantly, I'll say this before I kick it back to you. 
doing these things instead of going the other direction that I proposed is going to minimize damage. Because like, if you go right into a restricted diet, or supplementing with a bunch of supplements that you don't fully understand, or, you know, get into the space of like food fear, and a lot of anxiety and health anxiety, and like, oh my god, those things have great potential to do a great amount of harm, and make it that much harder for you to heal versus, you know, worst case scenario, you focus on trying to improve your sleep and you work on that for a while and you clean up your sleep hygiene. Worst case scenario, it just doesn't really work. You're not going to make yourself sicker in the process of trying to improve sleep, stress, movement, and general nutrition. Right. Well, it doesn't, I think again, it, it's not that it doesn't necessarily work. It just doesn't necessarily affect symptoms. So like, I think again, like it could still be, you might not notice a major effect working on sleep, but if you weren't getting enough sleep, it could be detrimental. So it might just be one of those things where it, it makes other things more effective knowing that you crossed off that box. But one thing you did mention that was so interesting when you do go to a provider, like a functional medicine provider, and they're like pathologizing everything, like, and it's like maybe it's really not that you have like a thyroid issue. It's that your diet and lifestyle, you have, you're suffering from a poor diet and lifestyle of some, some sort, or like there's a mismatch of what your needs are with your diet and lifestyle. Um, and I think again, like what's confusing when you get an IBS diagnosis is you want to do stuff that is very aligned with that diagnosis which would be like probiotics, prebiotics, like eliminate foods, this kind of stuff. But it's funny because I feel like, you know, a lot of the foundational pieces would be beneficial for other conditions. So like cardiovascular disease or um, diabetes or uh, I don't know. And that's probably half of why they work. Right. Right. Name condition here. Like, again, they're just generally health promotive. But someone that might have like high blood pressure or insulin resistance or something like that, um, they might be suffering from some of the same diet and lifestyle issues, but just it manifests in a different way, maybe because of genetics or different, different things that could be at play with that person compared to you. But it's just kind of fascinating because it seems like you have to get so nitty gritty of like, I need the IBS solution. Um, not the cardiovascular disease solution or the, um, you know, weight loss solution or whatever it is. I mean, weight loss isn't really a pathology, but like whatever the pathology or disease is like, or condition is like, I need a PCOS plan. And it's like, well, someone with PCOS would still benefit from sleep, dress management, movement, like a nourishing nutrient dense diet. Like every condition's going to benefit from that. Um, and again, you can get nitty gritty and tweak different things, but a lot of times it's not as big of a, like, I'd rather start broad, especially dietarily and, um, you know, see how someone responds to just a nutrient dense diet and like maybe eliminating some of the processed foods they're eating or some of the junk foods that they're eating. Um, not all, like you don't have to cut all that out to, to get benefit, but like what, what nutrient changes and focusing on nutrition from a nourishing standpoint, like how do you respond to that compared to anything else? And it's hard because I find that people just jump from like standard American or maybe just not an overwhelmingly great diet to begin with 
filled with maybe too many processed foods and like um, imbalanced meal composition. Uh, they're just undernourished kind of across the board with different areas. And then they jump straight to low FODMAP. Well, of course, they might feel better. Like, but did they need to go that far? Like, would would have just focusing on eating less processed foods and kind of making your meals more nutrient-dense, increasing fiber a little bit, um, adding in more vegetables, fruits, and plant foods, like, would that have done the trick? Or did you have to go low FODMAP? Like, that's something that's frustrating, I think, because we all kind of tend to want to go to extremes. Um, Well, and you described, like, wanting the IBS-specific thing. It's what I've mentioned before on this podcast, and I'm going to preface this by saying every single human being alive has this condition. I have it. Amy has it. All of us do. So you can't even deny it. But I think it's there bubbling beneath the surface more than we realize. And that's the I'm special syndrome. Mm -hmm. Or my diagnosis is special syndrome. Mm -hmm. Where again, it's the irony is the reason why these unsexy basic basic items work so well is the exact reason why nobody wants to do them. Because they (laughs) they work on so many different systems in the body and they holistically get you feeling better, that's the exact reason why they work so well. But it's also the reason why nobody wants to do them because it's like, oh, well, yeah, that's okay for cardiovascular disease, but I am a special person with a special diagnosis and I need a special intervention. And it's like, you want you want to find the one probiotic that was specifically researched for IBSD with cramping, with Hashimoto's, with whatever. And it's like, we're seeking this holy grail that probably doesn't exist. And we're ignoring the things that are screaming right in our faces and are so obvious. And, you know, honestly, like, it's hard to be 100% unbiased about our own health and about our own life. Mm -hmm. And that's just important to know is like, we're all observing the world through our filter and our perspective. And there's a reason why doctors still go to see doctors. Like, I can't even if I had the equipment, I can't like do my own pelvic exam or my own colonoscopy or whatever. Like I'd I like just, to see I, you do your own colonoscopy, Nikki. It would be tricky for sure. I feel like honestly, <laughs> somewhere in the bowels, pun intended, the bowels of YouTube, there probably is like one video of somebody doing a DIY colonoscopy, but I'm not going to put that on my channel personally. Oh my gosh. Um, but you know what I mean? Like that's, that's the f- crazy thing about this is like the basic B stuff is unappetizing to most people because it's so holistic, but that's exactly why it works. Yeah. Well, and I think you definitely touched on it with saying there's no Holy grail, like there's no magic bullet. And the more that you understand that right out the gate, the better you're going to be because Again, we all want a magic bullet. I think we're programmed culturally to think that there's a magic bullet because we receive pharmaceutical advertising all the time of like, oh, you just take this pill and everything's going to go. In the United away. States, we do. Right. Just right. For the Not record, in any other we are, country. One of, we are one of two countries on planet Earth that allowed pharmaceutical companies to advertise drugs to the public. 
I think it's us in New Zealand, I want to say. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Super twisted. So if we have people listening in like Canada or or Australia, they're going to be like, what the what? (laughs) Right. I know. It's, it's astonishing to us too. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and I'll, I'll share something too. Again, going back to, we all have, I'm special syndrome and we all want the Holy grail. We all want the shortcuts. Um, nobody wants to work on their stress. Like we just get to that point where we can't ignore it anymore and we have to work on it. But even with me, like I think I've shared before, right. That I, we both have aura rings And it measures heart rate variability and some sleep metrics. And I'm not like super into it, but I glance at it every now and then. And I will share my or my heart rate variability, according to the aura ring, sucks. (laughs) Like it's just real bad. And it's, it's weird because I go through life and I'm like, I think I have a pretty chill, laid back, not super stressed out person, but like the ring is telling me something else and I'm trying to figure it out. And like, of course, up until this point, my exploration of this has been like, oh, there must be like one herb that's going to magically increase my HRV. And I mean, there have been some herbs that help either my sleep or my HRV, but it's not like tripling it. it. It, you know, the gains aren't so profound. And this year, you know, I'm working a lot on like, my resiliency and my relationship with stress and stressors. And I'm, I'm getting more in the swing of like doing some deep breathing, and maybe doing some like stretching, like yoga kind of stuff. And I'm going to be really curious to see if the trend goes up on the HRV as I do that more and more, because I really think that that's probably the answer. But again, I was like, Ooh, lavender, this is going to do it. Ooh, you Yes. Right. And like, of course, I want the magic. I just want to take the potion and have my HRV be magically beautiful. Right. Like, you can biohack that. You can biohack your way to better yeah, HRV. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think again, like, um, even making like a little checklist for yourself of like what are like maybe four or five like non-negotiables that you're committed to each day for like again three months. So maybe that's like getting in bed by 11 or something if you wake up at eight or or getting whatever it is like working your bedtime back um and even if you have to take baby steps like that's totally fine too i think as long as you're just working in a better direction from sleep stress movement and diet like what are some steps that you can take and you could change week to week but i'd probably try to make progress in each of those areas week to week so maybe the your goals each month change, but they're in those categories. So maybe the first month you try to eat three fruits and three vegetables each day or something. If you had been maybe lingering at like two of those each day, maybe you up that a little bit. Maybe you focus on meal structure, like, oh, I'm just going to bump protein up this month. Like you could pick one goal to kind of work on if you want to do it kind of slowly Um, so maybe that's a goal for the first month. And then you go down to maybe stress management. Like maybe I'm going to add 10 or 15 minutes of some sort of stress reduction each day. It doesn't have to be the same thing, but I'm going to block this off my schedule each day and do something. Um, then again, like from movement, like how can I make progress in movement? Is it just to start moving? Like, is that where you're at? Is it to maybe you even have to reduce your movement a little bit if you're like, 
an endurance athlete or something and you're just running training right running an insane amount i talked to i she, i don't she didn't end up working with me um but you know was an endurance athlete and it's like uh, i just like don't know it's one of those things where and I've, I've worked with like ballet dancers too like if they're they're literally dancing like six hours a day like it's like, that's so much movement. Like, so there is limits with some of this stuff, but like, you know, most people just need to move more. Um, but again, there are the people that maybe are over movers that could be leading to some IBS issues as well. But like, again, what kind of step could you take movement wise? Is it just to move 15 minutes a day to start? Maybe that's a start. So that's kind of your goal there. And then, um, sleep, we talked a little about like, go to bed a little bit earlier, stress movement, uh, stress management, again, maybe block off some time there. So again, you can kind of go down each each one and you can write down goals for like a couple weeks and then you could change the goals. Maybe it's every month you change the goals, whatever it is. But like I would try to get the trajectory moving in a better direction in those four areas and then check in like two, three, maybe four months and see where you're at. Um, again, maybe the issues resolve themselves by just focusing on the foundational pieces more than likely you're going to get some improvements. Um, whether that's, you know, total improvement or like 25 to 30% improvement. But what I will say too, is that a lot of times you can't move forward with things like herbs or supplements or these things if the foundational elements aren't in place too. So like, or if you do, they won't be very effective. Right. So it's like, if you are just under eating this whole time, like, you know, you work with, clients that just like aren't getting enough calories for two years and they've done a gazillion things like that's not you're never going to make progress if that piece isn't fixed maybe you only get 10 percent benefit by fixing that piece which is still good but like it doesn't resolve all the issues but it makes everything else work so much better once that piece is in place so i think that's another element to it it's like some of these things might not like in and of themselves totally change the game for you. But when you layer in other strategies, it makes them way more successful and it can inhibit things from working if those bases aren't covered. Um, yeah. but yeah, that's like where I would probably start. Um, now again, we can always talk about if you got to like the three to four month point, what to do, what you could potentially do at that point. Um, but yeah, no, that would be where I would start with IBS. Yeah. And I think briefly I'll share like, um, so when you're implementing a new habit or a new thing that you're working on, um, I'm kind of fiddling with this right now myself. Cause again, I'm trying to get more in the habit of carving out some time for myself every day and like working on these things. Um, there are apps. So like this one that I found more recently is called Alti, Alti self. So like ultimate U L T I mm -hmm. self. Um, I think like I didn't pay the full price. I found a coupon code somewhere. I think it was like a New York post article that had a coupon code or something. Um, but anyway, let me see if, I, Oh, Oh, it's making me update the app. Darn it. I can't show it to you, but basically there's like little check boxes that you do every day and shoot. Is it really not going to let me, okay. It's not letting me open the app, but it's, there's like a little bubble for each day of the week and you like tap the bubble and it'll 
make a check mark and you can set goals like, okay, this thing I want to do once a week, this thing I want to do three times a week, this one I want to do three times a day. Mm. And you could set different goals and then you, you just do it on the app and you like log that you did that thing. Um, so even something like that, like making sure that you're really doing these things that you commit to, you know, you don't want to, you, the irony is that this episode is going to post in February. So you don't want it to be like New Year's resolutions, which typically are like, Ooh, I'm going to do all the things super intensely. Yeah. And then like a month later, it fizzles out and nobody's doing the resolutions. Side note, everybody, how are your resolutions going right now? Mid February? I guarantee not well, just based statistically, most of them never don't go well. Comment in the YouTube video down below. Um, But, you know, I think, and I honestly, I don't, I'm not against resolutions. I think that the problem with resolutions is that they're too extreme and people try to do way too much all at once. And that's why they typically fail. But, um, you know, I think committing to making some changes and just diligently making, making these changes for a few months is really reasonable. I, I even would consider doing that for like a cycle or two depending on, you know, the urgency and severity of your symptoms. But I personally, I think that it would be beneficial, like, okay, maybe you spend two, three months really focusing on stress and sleep, Mm. but you're not feeling the exercise thing as much. Right. And then you're, you're not 100%. Maybe you made some improvement. Well, then the next wave, you could add in exercise twice a week, right? Or, you know, increasing your fiber intake or, or even just doing a food diary so that you could get an, an assessment of how much iron and, and fiber and B12 you're actually taking in. Like, again, you could do that for free. There are apps where you could track nutrition for free and it's super easy. Like chronometer we've talked about before. Um, so I would even consider doing what we're describing and working on some of these different basic items. I feel like, or foundational, I guess items, I would consider doing that for like at least a couple of iterations. Then let's say somebody does do that. And they're like, all right, I'm still coming up. When you come up aces, I know the expression coming up aces. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I never, I don't know. Let me, right. Isn't that an expression like coming up aces? I feel like that suggests it's a good thing. Anyway, I'm not going to use the expression because I feel like that's not what I'm going for. Um, um, uh, or deuces? Is it coming it up? Keeps deuces? coming up. Um, Does anyone play cards? Some sort of song by, um, oh. by Panic at the Disco keeps coming up. Oh, I like them. Um, or I like the earlier stuff at least. I don't know if I'm familiar with their new stuff. Now, well, Ace anyway. means good. Well, I don't know. My family has been known to make up words and make up expressions. No, I so think it, it is a word. Be... There's just not like a nice like urban dictionary. Okay. Uh, oh, wait, well, this... there is an urban dictionary. No, it just means ace. No, oh. very cool. Yeah. All right. We'll we'll leave it be for now. But anyhow, um, say, say somebody gets diagnosed with IBS. Magically, they hear this podcast the same day. <laughs> I don't know how we could swing that. Can we just have this uh, playing on a loop in every GI doctor's office in right. America? Is that a thing we could do? Uh, we can we can hack the system. Oh my we gosh. just need somebody who's a computer hacker to team up with us. And then we can like infiltrate Mark Rober. He'd be good at this. Anyway, we'll, we'll plan that later after the episode. But um, say you hear this episode the, the very day that you get diagnosed. 
you listen to our advice, you work on some of these foundational items for a while, and you feel like yeah, there's still something going on. Um, I think if you ask normal people, like if you ask the listeners, probably most people assume that IBS is a microbiome based condition, and that there's a microbial component to what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that that can be true. But surprisingly, when you look at studies that look at like stool testing or microbiome testing, whether it be the small bowel or the large bowel, and comparing IBS patients with normal patients, they haven't quite nailed down a really definitive pattern of like, ah, yes, this is clearly the IBS person. Mm -hmm. And this is clearly the healthy person. Um, what's interesting, and I forget how I stumbled on this little rabbit hole, but I was doing a deep dive, I think for visceral hypersensitivity, and repeatedly over and over and over and over again, in the articles I was pulling up on PubMed, numerous different citations were very bold and very clear. And they would say, IBS is a disorder of the gut brain axis, right? Like, very clear, very adamant, like, this is what's understood. It is a gut brain axis disorder. And there's malfunction of the gut brain axis. So another one that I would consider pretty early in the in the game is looking at the lens of like the vagus nerve, gut brain axis. Um, You know, we have episodes on both of these topics, thinking about things like mindful eating, and connecting with your food so that your vagus nerve gets the memo that you need to digest something, Uh, maybe taking up new things like yoga or meditation or Tai Chi or volunteering or doing something to kind of stimulate vagal tone or deep breathing. Um, I I would think of it in like really addressing that element also. Uh, Then I think a little bit further down the road is when I would consider like maybe a microbiome test, like a stool test. Uh, there are some good ones that are pretty reasonably priced and you can get it without a doctor's order. So like ombre is the one that I usually use in the United States. It's like a hundred bucks and you could just order it, you know, and have it shipped to your house. It's not a huge ordeal. It's not super expensive. So I like that sort of testing as a baseline for microbiome stuff. Um, you could potentially rule out pathogens and have like your GI doctor order a pathogen stool test. I know there's one through LabCorp. I think it's literally called the GI pathogen panel. Um, but anyway, those are the sorts of things I might consider. Also, I, one more thing that popped in my brain is that it probably should be mentioned. Um, you at some point throughout this journey, if you are still experiencing symptoms at some point, you probably want to be screened for celiac disease just to make sure that it's not celiac disease or lactose intolerance. Because those two things, lactose intolerance is very common, but it it can get missed uh, yeah. a fair amount of the time. And that's pretty easy to treat in the sense of just like don't eat a lot of dairy anymore. Uh, and then celiac disease knowing that you have to be that careful with gluten could be a really big deal for you. So those are two things like medical conditions that I would consider getting screened for at some point in this process. Um, Yeah. Well, I almost think like, to me, there's almost an assumption that they've had some sort of GI workup to to rule out some of these major things. Um, 
if they are having IBS and things like that. But yeah, I, I, I like the idea of maybe doing a little bit of like vagal work and you could even incorporate that into some of your like movement strategies. Like if you do, if you're trying to increase movement, maybe you do like yoga because there's added, um, brain gut access benefits to that. Um, or again, maybe you do some deep breathing. Um, I think typically like most stress management activities are vagal supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like if I don't think I can think of one that doesn't affect the vagus nerve in a positive way, just anything that's going to bring you joy or like cause relaxation to some degree, I think supportive of the vagus nerve. There could be some that you find are more supportive for you. Um, from like a brain gut axis standpoint. So you could experiment a little bit with like a deep breathing um, or experiment with different ones. Like let's say you blocked off 10 or 15 minutes a day. You could experiment for a few weeks with different types of vagal supportive type um, activities and see if there's any that generally float your boat or feel better compared to others. Um, so I love that we're both, we have both adjusted our, our, um, standing seating situation. Yeah. Well, we're talking about movement, sitting on our butt too much. And like the idea of like, should you just move? <laughs> and yeah, here I am sitting on my duff on my little dorky ergonomic chair. Oh and my God. My, my, uh, shoulders are bugging me. That's why I was kind of standing up. Yeah. I need to like yeah. stretch a little bit. Likewise, I brought all of my adjusting tools over to my mom's house because my mom just had surgery uh, this past week and her neck was out of whack. And I was like, all right, maybe I need to work on her a little bit. So I brought like my little massage tool thing, my adjusting tools, thinking like, oh, it'll be easier to adjust her neck and her, her upper spine like when she's seated so she doesn't have to get out of the chair. And I left all my tools at her house. And of course, that's when I throw out my neck just a little bit. Right. And like at some point in the night, I became aware of like, oh, this one muscle is just a little bit ticked for no apparent reason other than I must have slept on it funny. So I'm kicking myself because I'm like, darn it. All my stuff, my activator, all my stuff I would normally use on myself is at my mom's house. Oh, no. (sighs) Anyway, that's all right. Enough of my sob story. But I figured standing up might be helpful, too. Um, Yeah. Let's, if I may, let's transition at this point well, to... Well, one, one other thing, too. Um, I may not continue. <laughs> well, when we're talking about the brain-gut axis situation, and, and it doesn't have to be this uh, at all, but, like, another avenue is, like, hypnosis, too, has been another up-and-coming one. And they kind of have been u- trying to do tests that compare it to, like, FODMAP versus hypnosis and what works and what doesn't for IBS. And that could also be another one. Like if you're, you've worked on your diet and lifestyle for a bit and you want to like maybe go the little extra bit, if you're still having symptoms, that could be another one that you try out and see how you feel because it's definitely addressing more of the brain gut axis scenario. Yeah, I've seen that. I think Nerva is the one that you're probably referring to that has a lot on like social media and whatnot. But yeah, I've seen that they've compared it with low FODMAP. Similarly, there was an article a while back that compared yoga twice a week yoga versus low FODMAP. They were equally effective. 
So which would you rather do? Would you rather cut out onion and garlic and avocados and wheat and dairy and like all the yummy things on planet Earth? Or would you rather do yoga twice a week? Right, right. I know which one I choose. Right. Um, yeah, that's, that's a really good point, too. Um, and again, like we've, we have many episodes at this point about the gut brain axis, the vagus nerve, we have interviews with therapists that are wonderful and psychologists. We've talked about stress and stress chemistry. We've done an episode about sleep. So all of these kind of foundational items, we probably have episodes on it already. Mm -hmm. Um, The audio might be a little bit squirrelier because I found out I was using my microphone incorrectly for a hundred episodes, but you know, there's a, there's always room for growth and, and we're here nonetheless, but okay. Now let me, let me try again. If I may, may I, may I, you may. Okay. I may let's transition over to similar scenario. We are playing this episode on a loop in a GI doctor's office. Somebody walks out of the office. Honestly though, hold on. Let me rewind. We're playing this episode on a loop at a functional medicine doctor's office. Oh, Lord. Okay. We're going to switch. We're going to switch. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody just got diagnosed with SIBO. They don't, they don't know anything about SIBO beyond what the functional doctor or the naturopath just told them. They're getting sent home with, let's face it, either a prescription for Rifaximin or a bunch of herbal antimicrobials and a one-page handout about low FODMAP or low fermentation or some sort of SIBO diet, quote unquote. But they happen to hear this episode playing on their radio on the way home that day from the office. What do we say to that person now? And again, I'm acknowledging I changed it because GI doctors are not diagnosing SIBO nearly Mm. as frequently, which should be a red flag to all of us. Um, But the people who are diagnosing this like it's going out of fashion, these are the functional medicine folks and the naturopathic medicine folks. And they're just, again, like Candida was the hot topic for a a long while. And now SIBO is in the limelight. And that's the hot topic that everybody has. Um, I'm not a SIBO denier. I do think it exists, but I don't think it exists with near the frequency we believe it to be. Actually, so can I... I'm going to keep talking for one more second. Honestly, my first thing that I would tell that person who's newly diagnosed with SIBO, my first thing would be, let me see that test. (laughs) And let's, let's approach this with some skepticism that you in fact have SIBO. Mm. That would be my first angle. And again, I'm not a SIBO denier. It's just, I have found infuriatingly enough that many Many, many people are being diagnosed with SIBO when they have a negative SIBO test. And it's infuriating. Like I'm seeing, for some God unknown reason, as an example, Genova Diagnostics still does a three-hour breath test. Why? Why? Even 90 minutes is too long, let alone 180. That makes no sense. I know like theoretically you would see the colon pattern really clearly, but like... Mm. I see practitioners diagnosing SIBO when there's a peak of breath gas at the 90 minute mark, the 120 minute mark. Like uh, I've seen SIBO diagnosed when there's a peak at the 75, 90, 
you know, 105 minute mark with a lactulose based test, like you really need to assess whether or not that person is reading the test correctly. And I still much to my frustration, I still see people diagnosing SIBO or suggesting that people have SIBO based off of stool testing, which is preposterous and unscientific and completely false. And if anybody does that to you, please walk away and never go back. And there are still companies, one of which has an, uh, the letters S, L, and D are in their name. I won't name names, but we all know what company this is. To this day, they are still telling well-intended practitioners that Oh, well, yes, you can, you can, uh, you can make claims about SIBO with our fancy stool test that is obviously superior than everything else on the market, even when provided with literature and citations from PubMed explicitly stating the opposite that you cannot make infer, you can't infer anything about the small bowel from a stool test. Even when presented with data, they still insist that their test is special and superior. And, you know, these practitioners believe these people. So anyway, end of rant. But the first thing when you're diagnosed with SIBO is to seriously question whether or not that diagnosis is in fact correct. Now I'll kick it to you. Yeah, we probably need to do an updated a breath test episode too. I know we just did like a test out guess one, but even just deep diving with like how to potentially interpret the breath test. Cause I find that a lot of the breath testing labs too, like it's their reference ranges that are telling providers that they have SIBO. And then you have providers that might not have as much experience in the literature and what the literature kind of says about where the cutoff should be compared to what these labs are saying where the cutoff should be. So there's a lot of confusion there. But I think, oh gosh, it's like so hard because we don't really catch people this early on. Like again, same thing. This is a fantasy world. I know this is a fantasy world. I love it. Like sometimes there are those unicorns that we'll get and it's like, how did you find me so fast? Like you just got diagnosed. What? Um, But I think when it comes to SIBO and if you get diagnosed with SIBO, like first and foremost in this debrief after your functional medicine conversation, it would probably be just a bunch of myth busting. Um, I think, you know, starting out the gate, just understanding that you can't starve SIBO, I think is very important. So trying to do a really aggressive diet is not going to help. It's probably going to hurt more than anything else. Not to say maybe like, maybe looking at the list of foods and just like off the top of your head being like, oh yeah, like I really might have an issue with onion garlic. Maybe you do a slight variation of that for a period of time. Maybe you remove a few of the foods that you feel like you do, you are triggered by and see if it helps for a bit. But like the idea that you have to remove that many foods is not going to be beneficial. It's only going to be really counterproductive, especially long-term. There could be a good... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, and remember, if you do experience a benefit from removing foods, it's a tool for symptom management. It's not treating the SIBO. It's not starving it. Right. You're not, you know, fighting the good fight as much as you think. It's just symptom minimization so you can live your life. Right. Well, I think that that's the fear that's instilled by the functional medicine space that you have to starve it. So then it's on the patient to be super hypervigilant and diligent from a dietary standpoint when that's actually not what happens. Like you can't really starve it 
Um, the gut microbiome is so complex. So like the idea that you can just starve one thing without potentially feeding other things is just a myth. Um, and then I think again, like telling the person that SIBO is really a symptom. So, you know, trying to peel back the layers, I find that the functional providers, I feel like they somewhat understand that it's a symptom, but they still treat it a lot like a root causal issue of like, you have bloating, you have IBS, it's SIBO, end of story, we're going to give you herbs, we're going to give you antibiotics, and we're going to give you this strict diet, but they don't really give you anything else. Um, and then once you haven't been helped or you've been on multi rounds and nothing's working anymore, they don't know what to do. They kind of throw their hands up and they say, oh, you're a difficult case. And it's like, no, there's, there's, you have to really understand like what, what is breaking down that's leading to the imbalance in the microbiome. Like what's driving the dysbiosis that's leading to SIBO, um, so yeah, well, it's, it's like the root cause of the root cause. Right. Again, right. I, I do agree. I think that the conversation with SIBO is very often, here's the root cause for your IBS. It was SIBO all along, kind of like Scooby-Doo, right. right? Where they pull off the mask and they're like, the janitor, <laughs> like it was that kind of a moment almost. Um, and it, it is, it's often presented as SIBO is the root cause hooray, we got it. And now we're going to murder it. And also, like, if there is a conversation of root causes of SIBO, which we conveniently have an episode about, by the way, uh, if there is any conversation around that, it's, it's almost always like, Oh, did you take PPIs? Did you get food poisoning? Um, maybe hypothyroidism, maybe that gets discussed mm-hmm. occasionally in this world but like otherwise it's kind of like oh, shrug we're but we need to treat it asap and there's not a ton of nuanced discussion of like the root causes of SIBO beyond maybe the top like two or three um but again it's like you need to trace back and not coincidentally the reason you got SIBO if it is there for real which i'm inherently skeptical of always now um if you really have honest to goodness SIBO the reason it got there in the first place, the reason why you developed it almost always relates back to the unsexy basics. Right. So it was your stress and your sleep frying your gut brain axis. And that lowered your stomach acid and tanked your motility. It was, you know, it inflammation and like inadequate nutrition. There's also more and more research emerging that suggests that SIBO is a condition of dysbiosis, not just an overgrowth of bad guys. So you know, antibiotics or overuse of antibiotics and antimicrobials and restricted diets, like that could cause what we are now labeling as SIBO. Right. Like the treatment is actually causing the dysbiosis. So it's so baffling and frustrating to be on the other end and seeing like, oh my gosh, all these people are, are committed to getting better, but are using the wrong tools. Um, and making things worse potentially. Um, And not to say, like, there isn't a time and place for herbals or a time and place for diet restriction, but, like, there's just so willy-nilly and, like, and you get another three months of herbals and you get another three months of herbals and, like, you get the elemental diet. Right. Exactly. So, I, for what, for a fun, fun little tangent, 
I just got a stool test back on somebody this week or no last week. Anyway, um, it was, it's one of the like, um, well, it's BioBFX. It's the one that, that looks at like whole GW sequencing and they have assessments for diversity on there. Worst diversity I've ever seen, really? like fully in like the red, like oh, the far, no. far left of that little gut, like guide they give you worst diversity. Uh, you want to know what she has done? I'm she's scared. done. She's done rifaximin. She's done multiple rounds of herbal antimicrobials. She's done the elemental diet. She did low FODMAP for a prolonged period of time, even though it didn't help with her symptoms. Her provider told her to keep doing it. The classic BS that we see when people come to work with us, where again, it's just like it defies logic. If you feel better on low FODMAP, that's one thing. If you're doing low FODMAP and you do not feel better, please, for the love of God, stop it. We're like, if you don't feel better when you do rifaximin the one time, what makes you think it's going to work the second time? Or if you don't feel better doing antimicrobials the first time or two, what makes you think that you're going to find the antimicrobial holy grail? Like maybe the whole approach needs to be just trashed and rebooted and you need to pivot entirely instead of going down the same path of starve, kill, starve, kill, starve, kill. Mm -hmm. Like at some point along that path, you have to question if you're on the right path. But again, I was I was looking at her stuff and she had some detectable C. diff and I forget what else. I think B. fragilis. And, and I was just like, ooh, like this, this is, oh, and her fiber intake. She had already pulled herself off of low FODMAP by the time she met me. But even eating what at first glance looks like a reasonably healthy diet, she was only getting about 50% of the RDA for fiber. She was only getting like 10 to 12 grams of fiber a day. It's yeah. like, yeah, that's that's going to cause dysbiosis. This poor woman probably was just deficient in fiber all along. And then, you know, her microbiome has been smacked around by all of this crap. And she was told that she had SIBO and and this boogeyman and that boogeyman. And it's like, dude, just like, let's just diversify your diet and get more fiber in your system and see what happens. And she's already doing quite a lot better. But um yeah, it was it was interesting to get that marker back finally and see where her diversity is starting out. And we're going to see if we could rehab it now and get yeah. her microbiome looking better. Yeah, it's again, just frustrating, because it's the same story. Like we hear the same story over and over and over again. And it's like, yep, when are these providers going to learn to try something different? And like, the Don't you just want to shake them like a rag doll? I do. I want to shake them like a rag doll. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of mind blowing at times that there's still so much push for some of these things, um, from, from a diet standpoint and from a, just a clearing standpoint. Um, but yeah, I, I like that you're like, you almost, if you have SIBO, listen to the first part of this podcast, like don't just skip ahead past the IBS part because all of those elements are still really crucial for the SIBO piece, there, there might be some extra layers. Like maybe you had post-infectious issues and you have major issues with motility now. Like maybe you need some TLC for motility that, you know, aren't necessarily going to be totally covered by, by the lifestyle and diet bases. Maybe you need some extra support there. Um, but just thinking about like what could be breaking down, leading to the dysbiosis, leading to kind of motility issues, leading to maybe digestive capacity issues is what 
I would say is the extra element for SIBO. So you want to try to peel back some of those layers. So again, like if you get diagnosed and you're working with a provider, really asking them, like, do I have, what kind of, do I have any motility issues? Like trying to peel back the layers with the provider and even just asking them straight up, what do you think my root causes are? Like continuing to push a little bit and not just being satisfied with like, oh, it's just SIBO. Take some herbs, you know, do this diet. Right. And then that's it. It's like the, the discussion should be more than that. So if you're not getting more, um, even when you're asking, like I always think it's good to get like the, give your provider the benefit of the doubt because some providers too might not even necessarily tell you the root causes that they're thinking about, but they have ideas in their brain. So like maybe they're just and they're layering in different interventions that would help. They're just not explicitly saying, um, all these things or explaining them in a way that makes sense. Um, I'll, I'll share something if I may. Um, as with everything, there's like two extremes and, and a line. Um, on the one hand, I like what you're saying. So like, don't, don't just take the SIBO diagnosis at face value, like continue asking questions about like, well, why did I get SIBO? Do I believe that I really have SIBO? If I do have SIBO, is starving and killing it really the right answer? Or is there another way that we should go about it? Mm. Is my provider like doing enough or thinking critically about this case to a point where like, I'm confident in their ability to help me? However, I've also had people who, despite my best efforts to communicate well, still ask a million gazillion questions and still perpetually ask, what are the root causes? Why do you think I have SIBO? What, what is my root cause? Are you sure this is the root cause? I know we talked about this is the root cause, but what about this is the root cause? And similarly, not coincidentally, these tend to be the people who constantly need reassurance and ask, are you really sure you can help me? Are you positive? Are you sure? Am I too far gone? Am I beyond your help? Are you sure you can help me? Are you totally positive? What if I have this? What if I have this? So sometimes, it, again, there's a balance. Like You don't want to be the person who's just like, along for the ride and asking zero questions. But you also don't want to be the person who's asking a million questions because sometimes that's a sign of like health OCD and like your, your inability to trust the person you're working with and like some really tightly wound mental health stuff that you might need to explore with a therapist. So there's kind of the two extremes and then the happy middle is to like be engaged come to your appointments with a couple of questions, um, you know, try to focus on the root causes and, and like forward movement as much as you can, but also like observe if you go to that, like really neurotic, tightly wound place. Yeah. Well, I feel like if it's other help, if I think a good way to think about it from like an anxiety or OCD standpoint is like, if there's a level of urgency behind like, the reassurance or like, I need to know my root causes now, or like, I need to make sure that everything's like good enough now. Or like, if there's kind of a level of urgency and anxiety behind the questioning, then it might be a little bit too, too far. You might be kind of teetering on the the line. And I, and I do think too, like, um, there, 
it just depends on the person. But if you kind of know you're like tend to lean more anxiety and want to and need a lot of reassurance, then I think you're right. Being a little bit careful of that makes sense. Or at least um, like being mindful, maybe go back and listen to episode 104, which is about health OCD and like exploring the idea of health OCD or health anxiety and like maybe being open-minded to that conversation at least. But right. like even with the root cause thing, I'll share one lady in particular comes to mind as I described that situation. So again, every single appointment she would ask, are you sure you could help me? Am I too far gone? Am I beyond repair? And she would also ask a lot about like, well, what is my root cause? Why do I have SIBO? And what what's peculiar, and I think there's similarity between these two things. Every single time we met, I would reassure her that, yes, I'm still totally confident in your ability to heal. Absolutely. Like, I'm not out of ideas yet. Right. You You need to give it time and like have confidence. And despite that, every single time she came back for more. And like, didn't believe it. Like no amount of reassurance was good enough to satisfy the itch. Similarly, she would ask almost every appointment, well, what is my root cause? What do you think my root cause is? And every single time I would answer and we would talk about the hypothesized root causes and every single time she would bring it up again. And it was like, well, I know we talked about this, but what about this? Mm. And it was like, she didn't even believe me when we did talk about the root causes and again, right. I, I don't necessarily, and she didn't have like a tremendously better theory to offer up. It's not like she had food poisoning. I was ignoring the food poisoning and I was like, oh, it's stress. And she's like, what about food poisoning? It wasn't that. It was just like, despite a lack of better evidence, she never really believed my hypothesis. And again, I think it goes back to like really deep seated inability to trust and like, probably a diagnosed OCD. But yeah, well, and I, I will say too, like, I think that there's definitely a huge um, contingent of our patient pool that struggles with health anxiety, health OCD. But I also think too, like, um, you have people who are potentially working with functional providers who make you so frazzled and potentially you did trust the first or second functional provider. And now you're like in a state where you feel like this is like your last hurrah. Hopeless. So, right. So you're kind of putting a lot of pressure on this particular provider. Um, and again, I think that like we tend to get people downstream. So there might be a little bit more of a desperate feel. So I almost feel like sometimes it's like a a part of just moving through some of like the bad providers creates less and less trust, which I do think is a natural thing. Um, so like there could be a bit of like increased health anxiety or just lack of trust in the provider or the lack of belief that you're going to get better just the longer you've been down this road because of like, the trauma of dealing with functional providers and just dealing with things that haven't worked that you've kind of lost hope. Um, and I think, again, if you're kind of in that scenario where you feel like, Oh, like I'm just burnt out sometimes taking a break from everything too. Like even if you got a SIBO diagnosis, but you're just like tired, you've tried a bunch of stuff for IBS and you just need like I know that these few things help kind of mitigate things. It's not perfect, but I'm just going to take a break 
for like a few months and just focus on some yeah, other I'm just goals. Live my life with the symptoms. Right, right. There's nothing um, like that can sometimes be super restorative and recharging and allow you to come back to a provider at some point if you decide to do that. Maybe again, like taking a break actually resolves some symptoms too. Who knows? But like, if you do want to work with a provider again, it allows you to sort of like move through some potential disappointment and emotions versus just hopping provider to provider to provider. Yeah. yeah. So again, I, it sucks again, if you haven't made progress and sometimes just that simple fact leads to less trust. And again, if you feel like you're just burnt out taking a break, I think wise. Um, so yeah, that'd be kind of my two cents thrown in. And I think that's, really useful. And I've had patients who express that, that they're like, look, I'm, I'm just going to regroup for a few months and I'll catch you on the flippity flip, man. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm tired of trying and I need to take a break and just exist with my symptoms. Um, I will say if the thought of taking a break sounds utterly preposterous to you or terrifying to you right now, like if you're listening to us and you're like, <laughs> wow, they're I I know what crazy. You're there's no way I could ever do that. This is super urgent. I have to treat it right now, right now, right now. That could also possibly be a hint of like some health OCD or health anxiety that's there. So again, be open minded to that. But I think right. also, well, throw- and I think to that point, like, if the level of urgency is so high, it's almost again, they're almost the people that might need a break the most. <laughs> In, yeah, in a weird way. Like, I feel like the more urgent and like desperate I was in my journey, the worst decision making that I'm like, the worst yeah. my decision making was. So even in terms of how you're going about working on your gut stuff, like the the more desperate and again, urgent things were in my case, the worst my decision making was, I think the worst probably my health OCD was, um, and health anxiety was. So well, yeah, it becomes very like scrambly and frantic. Yeah, at it's that like point. a frantic. And then, we've talked about frantic energy before, but like, I definitely had frantic energy during my health journey, and it is it's not uncommon, right? It's because we all want to be better. Like, there's nothing wrong with wanting to improve and to make steps and work with a provider and like continue the whole process. But again, like, if it's desperate. It just leads to poor decision making. Sometimes you overlook certain things that need work. Like yeah, I just think you've got tunnel vision right. on what you think is the thing. Right. And again, like even sometimes, you know, some of the desperate people that I work with tend to want to look for those quick fixes. Like they're like, I want to look for that it factor. And it's like, no, let's rewind and like look at your sleep. Cause that's been really wonky like how can we kind of improve that like it's hard to have those conversations that are going to take some time to see results because the level of urgency is so high and the the more quick fixy mindset you're in it it prevents you from seeing those really key foundational pieces well and it makes potentially harmful therapeutic options seem really enticing right so like antibiotics like rifaximin has the potential to do some harm like it's not totally free of risk but a quick kill phase wham bam with rifaximin looks that much more appealing when you're really desperate and frantic similarly the allure 
the siren song of herbal antimicrobials or even the elemental diet or like just restricting your diet down to like two items, like that feels so much more enticing when you're really frantic and desperate. Mm. So again, like kind of taking a step back and looking out for that. Um, I feel like we've strayed a little bit from the original topic of this episode, but I'm for it because this, I think this has been a worthwhile tangent to go on. Um, do you want to weigh in any more on this tangent or shall we hop back over to person newly diagnosed with SIBO? (laughs) I think the only thing I'll add is that it's funny you bring up like rifaximin. Well, I did even worse thing was take CPRO when I was desperate and wanting symptom relief. And my functional provider said, Oh, you'll feel so much better once you take the, the CPRO and it's like, good Lord. And that set me back, honest to God, probably a year. Like, I'm not exaggerating. Like, that destroyed my gut and, like, made everything so much worse. So. I believe you. It, I, I don't know how somebody can call themselves a functional provider or a naturopathic doctor and still use prescription antibiotics so willy-nilly. Right. Like, I get it a little bit more with Rifaximin, but... Like I've, I've seen that there was one I've talked about before, like this lady came to me with Hashimoto's and I don't remember if she had profound gut stuff going on, but like, you know, her functional MD told her that autoimmune disease begins in the gut, end of story. So we need to treat your gut. And they did a GI effects. And this is the, the famous one that I rant about. And she, she had high levels of pseudoflavonifractor on her stool test And he gave her freaking prescription antibiotics for it. And then they did a retest down the road and her microbiome looked way worse. And the pseudoflavonifractor was still there. So what did they do? They gave her more prescription antibiotics. This is an IFM trained, IFM certified functional MD who looks great on paper. And he's giving this lady like many, I think it was like three or four different rounds of prescription antibiotics. And that's when she bailed and came to me. And for those of you who are not caught up on all of the things I rant about, pseudoflavonifractor is a totally like nothing burger bacteria that we know very little about. But for some reason, unbeknownst to me, Genova Diagnostics has kept it on the GI effects stool panel for many years, despite my, my calling them out on this and, and talking to representatives and asking, why is this insignificant nothing burger bacteria on here? They continue to put it on there and report it and then people get prescribed stuff to treat something that probably doesn't even need to be treated. It's mind boggling. But again, like that just bugs the crap out of me. I was going to say too, to throw my profession under the bus one more time. um, We talked about like the disappointment and not trusting providers because you've been to several providers and you've tried so much stuff and you're just kind of like burnt out and not trusting because like everybody made you big promises and you're still sick and that's frustrating and you still have these symptoms despite these big promises and like that element. I will also say I think a lot of what the functional and naturopathic medicine space does induces uh, hypervigilance and OCD and anxiety type Mm -hmm. stuff because they paint this picture that your diet has to be totally perfect. And if you even look cross-eyed at a clove of garlic, the bacteria is going to win and the SIBO is going to grow and that it's going to be totally out of control. And like, similarly, if you're on like a candida protocol, they paint this picture 
that if and like health coaches, like other professions aren't immune to this either. But oftentimes, similarly, if you're on a candida protocol, there's this very distinct tone of like, if you even think of eating a single bite of your birthday cake this year, your gut will explode into bits and you're going to be overrun with yeast. You're going to have mushrooms growing out your nostrils and you're going to be totally hosed and you're never going to get rid of this candida ever, ever again. And it's just so like, whoa, holy macaroni, anxiety producing. Like, I don't even bend naturally towards anxiety. And even I'm like, oh, hearing that. So I just... And and again, like if you skip one dose of your antimicrobial, you're doomed. If you skip one dose of the whatever, you're doomed. Look at this functional test that probably means nothing, but I'm going to pretend it's the world. Look how bad it is. And you're doomed. Like there's just a lot of icky stuff that happens with functional medicine, I'm finding. And it tends to steer people directly into the direction of anxiety and OCD and Mm -hmm. hypervigilance. Yeah. So I think that's another reason why people just don't trust anybody because they're freaking paranoid. Right. Because the functional medicine profession has has unintentionally but very distinctly steered the car that direction, and right. now they can't get out of that ditch. Oh Lord! Oh, what are we going to do? Indeed. Lord, indeed. Do? So going back, going back and refocusing, because again, this was a tangent, worthwhile but nonetheless. Um, person who's just diagnosed with SIBO. I'm going to try to summarize, and then you can interject. Um, first I would question whether or not the SIBO diagnosis is actually accurate. Uh, that's the most important thing in my mind. Number two is if you do think you have SIBO for real, for real, for real, you've got to ask why, uh, usually it's going to be something that, that decreases or alters your motility or your digestive capacity or your gut brain access connection something in that kind of ballpark of stuff. That's usually what ends up happening. Again, we have a whole episode on SIBO root causes, go check it out. Um, So you've got to ask why, when you're treating, know that you cannot starve SIBO and eradicating it or killing it is probably not like the super best thing to do either. And there's more research suggesting that SIBO is just a localized dysbiosis in the small intestine. So I'd be really hesitant to do any sort of like kill and starvation methods. Honestly, like Amy said, go back and listen to the first half of this episode, because the unsexy foundational basic stuff is still what you need to do even with SIBO, because you need good sleep to have good gut brain axis connection, which you also you need good gut brain axis access connection to have good motility and you need good motility to treat your dang SIBO and like stress, gut brain access, motility, SIBO, nutrition. I mean, everything, all of these things can connect in some way back to the gut brain axis and your ability to heal tissues and run motility. And that's what you ultimately need to treat SIBO. You need to have really good motility, really good digestion and enough nutrition that your body is able to heal and function appropriately. So don't, don't get caught up in like the sexy sexiness of SIBO and think that it's a special condition because honestly, I've been treating SIBO for a long time. And the longer I treat it, the more I think SIBO is not special, not in the capacity that we're seeing it in the real world. Now, if you have short bowel syndrome at like the old school SIBO, that I think is a special condition in and of itself. But the, the people listening right now, 
with SIBO, I don't know if it's that special of a condition, guys, you still have to go back to the foundations and make sure that you're leading a healthy lifestyle and eating a healthy diet so that your body can function. And that includes motility. So that's my shtick. That's all I got. I love it. I don't even think I have anything to add. I think we are Look good. Look at that. I must have summarized Boob is filling. Well. Boobs filling up nicely. <laughs> the boob meter I want is like, going again. I want like the new people that have come to this podcast to listen to this starter episode to have no idea. <laughs> like, <laughs> So are we not going to share why there's well, we a boob can. meter? Uh, my oh, my okay. boob is filled with milk. She's I'm... breastfeeding. Yeah. And Cece only likes one boob. That's yeah. the short version of the story is that Cece only likes the one boob. So it's the workhorse boob mm. and just goes crazy. And the lefty is a slacky, slacky yeah. boob. Lefty is just a flapping in the wind at this point. You know, she's doing the best she can, though. Yeah. Right? Like, like it's it's okay, Lefty. We're we're here for you. She's there for moral um, support. Yeah. There yeah. you go. So when, okay, like, that... when little righty, like, it's like, I'm getting so full. She's just like, hang she's in like, there, there, girl. There. <laughs> <laughs> you got this. Hang in there, lady. Yep. Oh, goodness. See, this is the kind of stuff you could tell Cece about down the road. Like, if you can... If you can add this story of like, you only like the one boob and the other one was flapping in the breeze. If you can tell this like at her 16th birthday party, that would be perfect because she'll be mortified. Like, Bob, are you talking about your boob? Well, except what if I like have her be the weirdo that just like wants to talk about taboo topics like poop, breastfeeding, periods. Like she's just out and about just spewing spewing stuff like what's Preaching your poop on the bristol stool chart to like randos and what's your period honestly, flow look like you know honestly that is gonna be jess um i'm pretty sure my daughter's gonna be a lawyer because man she can argue her way out of a box she's she's a spitfire i really think she's an attorney in the making but um i don't think i told you this so okay so my poor child and my poor family I regularly talk about these poop experiments that I'm doing for my YouTube channel. (laughs) And like the last year in particular, I've been doing a lot of things where I'm like, I do stool testing for a baseline and then I do something. And then I do stool testing after I do the thing. And I'm like assessing if it changed. And so I'm like openly talking about all of these poop experiments in my household. And my beautiful, wonderful husband regularly is sent off to the UPS store or USPS to mail my poop to God knows where he mailed two of my kids today. Bless his little heart. So Mike is like privy to the poop experiments and he's mailing my poop on the regular. I asked him today, I was like, would you have believed 14 years ago when you, when you met this divine tall rower with hot pink tipped hair, would you have ever believed that we would be living in North Carolina and you would be mailing my poop? And he, every time I do this, he's like, no, never. Oh my gosh. Um, But then Jess, now my seven year old organically is coming up with poop experiments for me. And the recent one is very horrifying. Uh, so I just wrapped up the Datis Karazian veggie mashup experiment. And I just sent off the last of the kits today for that one. So I was saying the other day, I'm like, oh, good. Like this poop experiment is done. And now I can transition into getting my body ready for surgery and like kind of do some preoperative type planning. And I don't have to worry about eating my veggie bush every day. And Jess is like, mommy, I have the 
I have an idea for your next poop experiment. And I'm like, do tell. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I'll have to get it from her again. But she said, uh, we go to Wegmans and we get like butter and like oil and I think Wegmans hummus and we mix it all together. And then I have to eat that slurry every day and then <laughs> test your poop. And I'm just like, none of this sounds tasty. Like butter, oil, and hummus all stirred together into a slop. Sounds and like I'm one of her like, famous salads. <laughs> I, yeah, she does like making her famous salads. But yeah, I was just like, thanks, Jess. <laughs> Yay. Oh my gosh. But she mentioned it once and I was like, oh, the next day she'll forget about it. No. <laughs> she brought it up the following day and I was like, damn it. She's relentless. What do I do? What do I do to get out of this? And then, I, so I think now this catches up to present time. So like a day or two later, she organically brings it up again. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to have to make this disgusting slurry and eat it just once just to get her off of this kick. But yeah, she thinks that this will be the greatest poop experiment ever. And I'm just like, ugh. This is gross, but it goes to show you that my child, the weirdo, is probably going to be the kid who talks about poop and periods and, I don't know, like dental plaque. Our kids will have to talk. Jess will be well on her way, I feel like, in the world. Oh, yeah. Little Cece's going to be like... under her wing. Yeah. Cece's going to be seven. Jess will be 14. And they'll kind of like... Jess will get her into trouble. Show Show her the ways of... Or Jess will have her own weird YouTube channel by that point. I don't know, man. Like, she could do the butter, hummus, oil experiment on her own channel someday, but I don't think I'm doing it on mine. Yeah. Um, but if you want to see it, you know, if you want to see me eat my words potentially and you want to know, okay, is she going to do the hummus, oil, butter, bush? Yeah, how dedicated I mean, are you? Subscribe to-, to my YouTube channel, and that way, if I do do that experiment, you'll be the first to know if you're subscribed. So go find the gut microbiome queen, Dr. Denez, on YouTube, and and you'll know the answer. I don't think I would hold my breath, though, yeah, for what I, it's I've, worth. I'm actually holding my breath. <laughs> do it. All right, guys. Well, that's a wrap for today. Amy, go relieve righty, and we will see you back here for another thrilling and occasionally depressing episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast, where we tell you that you have to go back to the basics and maybe you don't have SIBO after all. That's why it's depressing. <laughs> but gosh darn it, we try to keep it fun along the way anyway, and we try to keep it as balanced as humanly possible. As always, write us nice reviews. Please and thank you. Leave comments. I do read them moderately occasionally, and we will see you right back here, same time, same place. Good.